Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Acts, chapter 18. I'm glad to be back. Um, I did speak the two Sundays I was in the Philippines. I preached at uh, the church that my brother-in-law pastors in San Mateo and was glad for the opportunity. I appreciate John speaking while I was away. If you look back over the past few months, uh, we did a series on wealth and poverty, and then I did a series on war, a biblical view of war. What I thought, the Lord willing, we would do for the next few months is look at the book of 1 Corinthians. And rather than doing a verse-by-verse exposition, which I've done at a number of different Bible studies that we've had um, at different people's houses over the years, um, that we would look at the issues that are involved in this particular book. Um, In writing to the Corinthians, Paul deals with at least 11 different issues, 10 of which deal with behavior, and one is theological, uh, chapter 15, which deals with the resurrection. What I thought we would do today is sort of prepare the way for our study of 1 Corinthians We would look at Paul's time in Corinth, Paul as the author of this book, Corinth itself briefly as a city, the Corinthian believers, how this book came to be written, and why it is important for us to look at it. In terms of Paul's time in Corinth, that's what we will look at now here in Acts chapter 18. In the first 18 verses, we have sort of a brief description of the 18 months uh, that Paul spent there in Corinth. So follow along if you would as I read verses 1 through 18, here in Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, preaching or teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter among yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, 
the synagogue ruler and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cancria because of a vow he had taken. And we'll stop our reading there. In this brief section of the historical book of Acts, we read about Paul's time in Corinth. And here we get some important pieces of information, particularly that will help us in our study. Paul went to Corinth alone. We read in verse number one, and this was not his usual way. This was not customary for him. But because of persecution he had experienced in Macedonia, specifically in Thessalonica, and uh, even in Berea, he had to leave town. That's why he went to Athens alone, leaving behind Silas and Timothy, his companions, who later joined him in Corinth. In Corinth, he meets two people, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Priscilla is also known as Prisca, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 16. Priscilla is uh, sort of a diminutive form, a familiar form. They had recently been expelled from Rome by Claudius. Uh, Claudius, I think, in 47 or 49 A.D., ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, and so they went to Corinth. Uh, they had the same occupation that Paul did. Paul worked with his hands. He made tents. And since they had the same occupation, he worked with them. Now, we're not told whether or not they were believers before he met them, or whether or not he was involved with their conversion. Uh, we're simply not told that. What we are told is that he worked together with them. <coughs> and this is an important issue because in 1 Corinthians, as well as in 2 Corinthians, Paul will have to address this issue. <coughs> Excuse me. The Corinthians are unhappy with Paul because he works for a living. They want to pay him. He's unwilling to take their money. And for the Corinthians, in the Greek way of thinking, if you're a professional, you get paid. If you don't get paid, you're an amateur. Since he's teaching them and not getting paid, how seriously can you take this man? He's not taking our money. <coughs> in Corinth, Paul followed the same pattern of ministry that we find throughout his, uh, his missionary journeys. He begins in the synagogue. He begins in the place where the Jews, the Jews meet on the Sabbath. And there he seeks to persuade, persuade the Jews and the Greeks or God-fearers. Uh, Emily read to us about Cornelius, who was a God-fearing man. This is a title that was given by the Jews to a non-Jew who would come and worship with them, but who was willing to become a proselyte. Uh, a Greek man, a Roman man, any type of man who is not Jewish, could attend the synagogue and be called a God-fearer, but if he wanted to be known as a Jew, as a proselyte, he would have to go through certain rituals, including circumcision and baptism. Paul preaches in the synagogue, and as we find in other places, the Jews oppose him. Here we find that they become abusive, and so he leaves the synagogue, and he goes next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, a God-fearer, that's probably where the congregation met for the 18 months that Paul was there in Corinth. There they are met, they are joined by Crispus, interestingly enough, uh, the leader of the synagogue, but he has a Roman name. His entire household believes, 
and many of the Corinthians also believed. And so Paul seemed to have a very fruitful ministry in Corinth. But a danger, apparently, or danger was a very real issue. Only at certain points in Paul's life, I can think of two other occasions, did Paul have a vision of the Lord Jesus. That's excluding his conversion experience. And at every point, they involved danger. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to Paul. Um, actually, Paul hears him in a vision. We don't know that he physically saw him. And the Lord tells him that he should not be afraid. Um, we read, uh, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Then we read about how that he's brought before Gallio. Uh, Gallio, by the way, was the proconsul. We have uh, inscriptions to that effect, confirming what Luke tells us. And Gallio basically kicks everybody out of court, says, this is a Jewish matter, I want nothing to do with this. Um, you notice at the end, in verse number 18, and at least in my Bible, verse 18 begins a new paragraph, but I wanted to include it, because when he left Corinth, he went to a nearby town, the town where the, the harbor was, to go to Ephesus. He cuts off his hair in fulfillment of a vow. I believe that this vow had to do with his safety. That Paul vowed to God, I will not cut my hair the whole time I am here in Corinth, um, and, and God in return would keep him safe. And at the end of his time, after 18 months of letting his hair grow out, he cuts it off. And I believe that if you go to chapter 21, when he goes to Jerusalem, he takes that hair with him and presents it uh, at the temple. This is the way that things were done. You can read this in Numbers chapter 6. Paul leaves Corinth and goes to Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila go with him. He only stays there for a short while and returns back to Palestine, then comes back to Ephesus where he stays for three years. But it is in Ephesus that Priscilla and Aquila meet a man named Apollos, a Jew from Alexandria. They instruct him. Apollos is critical to 1 Corinthians because many of the believers there say, no, we're, we don't listen to Paul anymore. We listen to Apollos. It is important for us to understand from this passage and for our study in 1 Corinthians, Paul started the church in Corinth. He was the founder of that church. And he would remind them of, the, of this sort of gently and not so gently. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. In other words, people, I was there for a year and a half I established this church. I founded this church. I am, well, he will say in chapter 4, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you have not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, Paul says, I'm the first one who preached the gospel to you. Now, other people have come along, Apollos, maybe even Peter, and they have encouraged you, they have instructed you, they have taught you, but they're building on the foundation. I laid the foundation, I founded this church. And this will come up time and time again as he writes to the Corinthians. Now turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we look at the beginning of this letter, uh, it follows the format of letters in the ancient world. Uh, for us, in the modern world, we put our signatures at the end of a letter. So that oftentimes, if it's not on the envelope and you don't recognize the handwriting, you have to go to the end to find out who wrote it. Here, it's at the very beginning. 
And Paul writes to them, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. This is different than what we find in his other epistles. So, for example, in the two epistles that precede this chronologically, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In the other letters, we find Paul writing in the first person plural. So the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us okay, and of the Lord. This letter is very different. This is a very personal letter. This is the founding pastor writing to the people in Corinth, and he uses the first person singular. So he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me, not us, but me. And it's not a self-centered thing. It's simply that Paul started this church and he is trying to correct certain problems. Sadly enough, Paul, who started this church, now has to establish or reestablish his credentials. That's why he begins the way that he does. It's not typical of, uh, of all of his uh, openings. It is similar to that, what we find in Romans. But he says that he is one who is called, that is, Paul's an apostle not because he chose to be, but because God called him by the will of God. And this seems to be redundant. You know, if you're called by God, then that must be God's will. Um, he just wants to remind the Corinthians, I didn't choose to be an apostle. God called me. It was his will, not my will, that I be an apostle and that I go to your town and start a church. His ministry as an apostle was based on God's call. It was based on God's will. And so, as we go through this epistle, there are times when Paul may seem to be self-effacing, you know, not wanting to talk about himself. But when it comes to the matter of his being an apostle, Paul is inflexible. He will not give an inch on that. Because he wasn't apostle by his own choice. It is by the will of God. And if God called you to be an apostle, and then somebody says, well, you know, I actually don't think you're qualified to be an apostle. I don't think you're a very good apostle. Paul would say, God called me to be an apostle. That, that is a non-negotiable issue. And he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. It is worth noting that apostle is used in two different ways in the New Testament. One, we would say the capital A apostle, the twelve, those who have been chosen by Jesus to do a very specific ministry. They are the foundation of the church. But then we find other individuals who are apostle small a, people like Barnabas or Silas or Timothy. Paul finds himself being in both camps. He is a messenger sent by churches, as was Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. But he's also a capital A apostle, someone who was chosen specifically by Jesus Christ. And it is the capital A apostle that gives Paul his authority. And he will not back down on this. So at the end of chapter 4, in what seems to be very harsh language, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip? Or in love and with a gentle spirit. Like, well, Paul, that's very harsh. But he is a capital A apostle. He is one of the foundations of the church. And they should listen to him. 
You may have noticed that Sosthenes is mentioned both here in 1 Corinthians 1 as well as back in Acts. We're not sure that they're the same people. Uh, they may or may not be. Um, Sosthenes did write a number of Paul's letters, but as a secretary. In the ancient world, people did not write the way that we do. You know, we sit down to write a letter and we write. They would dictate letters and somebody else would write it. That is, it had to be spoken out loud before it could be written down. And that's what Paul does in his letters. And when we get to chapter 16, we see that in verse number 21, Paul writes, I, Paul, write this greeting by my own hand. In other words, the rest of the letter, Sosthenes, Paul dictated, Sosthenes wrote it down. But at the end, in his own penmanship, Paul will write, and, and we think that Paul probably had bad eyesight because when he writes to the Galatians, he does the same thing. He says, you see what a, how big my letters are as I write to you. Uh, but in the ancient world, you dictated letters. You didn't simply write them the way that we do today. So that's Paul, his time in Corinth, and Paul is the author. What about the city Corinth? You know, they say, in, they say in real estate that there are three important things. Location, location, location. Corinth had location. It was on this isthmus between the Peloponnesian section, the south. It was four and a half miles wide, and then it went up to the mainland of what we now know as modern Greece. On the one side, you have the Saronic Gulf. On the other, you have the Corinthian Gulf. And all trade from Asia came through there. Apparently, weather-wise, it was not safe to go around the south of Greece. So people would come in, and a, and a large channel had actually been dug to get from one side of the isthmus to the other. Corinth had it all when it came to economic prosperity. <clears throat> it had been a city-state uh, back during the heyday of the Greek city-states, Sparta, Athens, those. But it was destroyed in 146 uh, by the Romans. And a hundred years later, by a certain Roman general named Julius Caesar, in 44 BC, it was rebuilt. As soon as it was rebuilt, it became a prosperous city because of its location. All trade to Rome from Asia had to go through Corinth. And it became a very prosperous town. Unlike other towns, however, and other places where you have what is known as a landed aristocracy, that is, the old families who have had land there for years and years, and they're the aristocrats. Corinth didn't have that. So its aristocracy was a moneyed aristocracy, an aristocracy of money. It had a fiercely independent spirit. Corinth was really quite a unique place. One writer put it this way, Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. As, you know, the Big Apple, and then Los Angeles as a port to Asia, and then Las Vegas for all the delights that it may seem to offer. This is what you found in Corinth. Religion, vice, economy, the money, it was all there. It was a very busy town. What about the Corinthian believers? Well, they seemed to be as diverse as the city they came from itself. And we find this in a number of ways. Um, ethnicity, we find Jews with Roman names, Aquila, Priscilla, Crispus. We find those simply with Roman names, Fortunatus, Gaius, Titius, Justus. 
We have Greek names, Stephanus, Achaicus, and Erastus. So in terms of ethnicity, it was a quite a diverse congregation. In terms of economic status, we have those who are well-to-do. I mean, if they meet in the house of Titius Justus, he must have a fairly large house that can, that's large enough for the church to meet in. Uh, Stephanus, who comes to visit Paul in, uh, in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila, even though they work for a living, we see them moving all over the place. They start in Rome, according to Acts. They go to Corinth. They go to Ephesus. And then they move back to Rome, because when Paul writes the Romans in Romans chapter 16, he mentions, he says, say hi to Priscilla and Aquila. These people were on the move. And it costs just as much then, if not more, to move around as it does today. And so we have people who were well-to-do. But we also seem to have slaves. Uh, Quartus, which means the fourth, uh, may have been a slave. Achaicus is simply someone from Achaia. In you know, olden days, I don't think people do that anymore. People have a nickname like Spanish or Dutch, something like that. Achaicus is someone from Achaia. He very well could have been a slave. We do know from chapter 11, the whole controversy about the Lord's Supper. There are those who have and those who have nothing. That's how Paul puts it. And these economic divisions have caused divisions in the church itself. Now, when we go through 1 Corinthians, I think some of you already have an understanding. You've already read it. Let me try to correct something right off the bat. I think usually when we read 1 Corinthians, we think there's, the problem is that because of the ethnic differences and the economic differences, that this is a church that is divided. And I do think there are divisions there. But I think there is one primary issue. This is a church that has turned against its pastor. This is a church that has turned against the man who started the congregation. It is a conflict, the, the church versus its founder. And the man who founded the church is not necessarily trying to reestablish control over the church, but to reestablish his credentials and the message that he preached. They question his authority. Hey, you're an amateur, Paul. You didn't take our money. How, why should we listen to you? Paul has to say, listen, I'm an I'm a capital A apostle. Well, you know what? If they question his authority, they will question his message. And 1 Corinthians is Paul's rebuttal to their questioning of basic points of his message that they have called into question. Again, if you look at uh, verse number 2 here in 1 Corinthians 1, you will see that it is, this is addressed to the church of God in Corinth. And it might seem like a small thing, but in Paul's other letters, he says, for example, to the Thessalonians, to the church of the Thessalonians in God. So the church in such and such a place in God. Here they are the church of God in Corinth. To emphasize they belong to God. Not to themselves, they are not the church of Corinth. Okay. I don't know if they had church names back then, but if they decided to call themselves the church of Corinth, Paul wants to remind them, no, you are actually the church of God. You don't belong to yourselves. You can't do whatever you want. You don't belong to me. You don't belong to Apollos. You belong to God. In chapter 3, verse 9, he will say, you are God's field 
God's building. You belong to Him. So you can't do as you please. You cannot believe whatever you want to believe. You can't believe as you like. You must do what God says. Because you belong to God. What is the occasion of the writing of this letter? We know from what we've read in Acts 18 that Paul spent 18 months there during which he founded the church. He goes to Ephesus, back to Caesarea, back to Ephesus, and he stays in Ephesus for three years. I think probably the longest he stayed in any one place that we know of. And while he is there, he writes them a letter. It's not 1 Corinthians. It's another letter that, that has not survived. Because if you look in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says to them, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, what letter is that? It's certainly not this letter. He had written them a previous letter. So, in a sense, that was 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians A. Okay, this is the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. This is the one that has survived, however. He writes them a letter. Uh, apparently, they're not happy with what Paul had to write in his letter. So, they send a letter back to Paul in Ephesus. And we find in chapter 16 that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus are the ones who bring this letter to Paul in Ephesus. Based on the reports that he gets from these three men and the letter, Paul then writes his second letter to the Corinthians. It is this letter right here, 1 Corinthians. In the first part of this letter, he does not address their letter. He addresses rather the oral reports. He's heard from these three men about what's going on in the church. And then in chapters 7 through 16, he gets to their letter. And we know when he gets to their letter because we find this expression, now about, and then he'll mention an issue. They had written to him saying, we no longer believe the way you do, Paul. The way you believe is wrong. This is what we now believe. And Paul will say, well, now about that, let me tell you what is right. As we study 1 Corinthians and look at these issues, we need to keep something in mind. This is a dialogue, but we're only hearing one side of it. I'm sure you've done this where somebody's on the phone and you try to figure out who they're talking to. And sometimes you can by whatever the person you can hear says. Well, as we go through this, we don't hear the Corinthian part. Every once in a while, Paul will mention, well, you said this. But for the most part, we're, we're trying to have to reconstruct what it is they said that now Paul answers in a specific way. Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not. But let me close by answering a question. Why should we study 1 Corinthians? It sounds simplistic, but it is true. First of all, we must study 1 Corinthians because it is Scripture. It belongs in the Bible. It is a part of Scripture. Paul wrote years later to Timothy, all Scripture, okay, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 1 Corinthians is scripture, and therefore it is useful to us for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training. Secondly, I think studying 1 Corinthians gives us wonderful insight into the very nature of scripture itself. 
don't know if you've ever heard this, but I've heard people describe the Bible as God's love letter to me or God's love letter to you. And, and so they have a sense that the Bible is written with them specifically in mind. And, you know, this may sound wonderful and romantic, but it sort of gives them or allows people to come up with wrong interpretations or wrong understandings. I've heard the Bible described as a living book. One person described it wonderfully as, he said, I read the Bible as though the ink were still drying. That is, that the people who wrote it have just finished writing it. The ink is still wet. It's still alive to me. And while this is a beautiful way to describe Scripture, the question must be asked, to whom is it being written? See, 1 Corinthians was not addressed to Damon Woods. It was addressed to the Church of God in Corinth. Very specific individuals who lived in the 50s A.D., because Paul was there about 50, either 50 to 51 A.D. in that period of time, and he wrote this sometime later. This is not written to me. I'm on the sidelines listening to this dialogue going back and forth, and as I read and study the dialogue, I learn principles, truths, that are true to me. Okay. But this was not written to me. Let me. Let's say, for example, that somehow in the confusion, and, and this wouldn't have happened because the time frame is different, but let's say that Paul had accidentally sent this letter, not to the church of God in Corinth, but to the churches in Galatia. He, he did write the churches in Galatia. What if he accidentally sent them the wrong letter? What, how would, what would they have thought? I think their response would be, you know, it's great to hear from Paul, but we have no idea what he's talking about. Because in 1 Corinthians, he addresses problems in Corinth. Not in Galatia, not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, but in Corinth. Likewise, if Paul had sent his epistle to the Galatians, if he had sent it to Corinth, People are like, Paul, we have no idea what you're talking about. And it's interesting to compare, at least Galatians and 1 Corinthians, at one point. In, in Galatians 3.28, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we get to 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 12, Paul will say, for we are all baptized into one spirit, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. You'll notice that in Corinthians, Paul doesn't say male or female. Why? Well, because that was the whole issue of gender identity was an issue for the Corinthians. It wasn't an issue for the Galatians. So Paul can say, listen, in Christ, we're neither male nor female. Had he said that to the Corinthians, they're like... See there? Gender is not an issue. Gender identification is not an issue. So Paul is careful what he writes to one congregation versus another. We should be aware as we study the scriptures, and, and 1 Corinthians makes this come alive, at least to me, that oftentimes there are specific individuals who are addressed and specific problems that are addressed. And the writer is addressing those people and those problems and not me. And I need to understand that. Again, there may be principles. Okay. But I need to understand that the, the author is addressing a specific group of people. 
And in 1 Corinthians, this is incredibly important, particularly when we get to chapter 14, where, where Paul says that women are to keep silence in the church. If they have any questions, they're to wait until they get home and ask their husbands. And people have used that verse against me, by the way. Uh, we've had people who have attended here who no longer attend because we allow women to pray, because we allow women to do the reading from Scripture. And they're like, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says women aren't supposed to do anything. We'll read the passage again. What does he say? If you have any questions, wait till you get home and ask your husbands. Paul, I have a question. What if I don't have a husband? He's not talking to you. He's talking to a very specific group of women in the Corinthian church who are causing problems. And Paul is basically saying, shut up and wait till you get home and talk to your husbands there. Don't do it in church. He's not talking to all women in the church of all time. And I think it's important to understand how Scripture is written. Now, the problem that we face now is we have to stay between the two extremes. The one extreme, which I think most of the church follows today, is they don't see the Bible as a historical book at all. The context doesn't mean anything to them at all. They read a verse, oh, that's for me. And don't understand this was written 2,000 years ago with a very specific context in mind. The other extreme is to be so into the historical context to say, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm living in the 21st century. I'm not living in the 1st century. Certain parts are very historically specific, but almost all of it has application to us. There's one final reason why we should study the book of 1 Corinthians. And let me read to you a quote. The cosmopolitan character of the city and church, the strident individualism that emerges in so many of their behavioral aberrations, the arrogance that attends their understanding of spirituality, the accommodation of the gospel to the surrounding culture in so many ways, these and many other features of the Corinthian church are but mirrors held up before the church of today. The problems that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians are problems that the church, at least in this country today, faces as well. The sense of arrogance, the sense of individualism, the desire for knowledge and not focusing on love and on focusing on those who are weak, the whole confusion about gender issues, I mean, you name it, the problems that the church in Corinth faced, that's what the church faces today. And if there's any book that is relevant for us as a people today, as God's church in this place, it is 1 Corinthians. And I'm hoping that as we go through it relatively quickly, because we're not going to go verse by verse, we're going to go issue by issue, that you'll have a sense that, yes, okay, Paul is writing those people back then, but the truths that he imparted to them, they're still true today and we need to embrace them and put them into practice in our lives. As I told you at the beginning, Paul addresses at least 11 issues. Only one is theological. That's the resurrection. The Corinthians are like, we, we, don't, we don't do that. We don't believe in the resurrection. The other 10 issues, it's about how they were acting, how they were behaving. And I think it has incredible wealth of information, but more than information, application, for us today. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we do thank you for your word, but may we understand how it was written and how we are to approach it, how we are to apply it. I fear that your word is, has been much abused. People taking verses out of context, people claiming that you have promised them things that you have not. May we, as we go through 1 Corinthians, gain an appreciation for the nature of your word. May we also see that the problems that the Corinthians face, your church at large faces today. And the solutions and the truths that Paul sought to impart to these people are still true today. I thank you for this time that once again we could be together to worship together. I ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.